the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head to Hour 3, one of my favorite uh, people in the, uh, well, I was going to say in the Valley, but it's really in the country. Jeff Taylor and I were uh, giving testimony, I guess, uh, earlier at the state capitol, and I said, what are you doing later? Because I could listen to him for hours, and he said, I'm free. So... um, I bring in Jeff Taylor once again. He is the uh, chairman of the board for the Salvation Army Southwest Region for Drug Rehab mm-hmm. and uh, a man of many, many, many parts. You've heard his story before. We may hear a little bit more about it again, but he specializes obviously in drug prevention. He works with me on a new project I'm doing with uh, Hugh Hallman and Steve Moak Jr. and a few others uh, on drug prevention. We'll tell you more about that later. But uh, we had an occasion to talk uh, with some legislators today over at the state capitol. And I guess you're like me, Jeff. Um, You wake up really early. (laughs) And so the first thing I saw this morning was a text from you. A second woman today, this week, was found dead in what we euphemistically called a zone, which is the homeless, the chronically homeless encampment area around 9th and Jefferson. Boy, second, when are we going to wake up? Talk to us about everything you want to talk to us about. Well, it uh, she was found dead because she was murdered. And, you know, there's a big distinction because we have people that are dying down in the zone every day and some are murdered um, and some overdose, some uh, die of exposure and it seems that we uh, have become very complacent to a population that it's very easy not to like mm-hmm. and not to care about. And to ignore and not see, right? Right. Um, so anyway, the uh, and thank you again, Seth, for, for having me on. I always enjoy yeah. you know our afternoons together and also pre-4 a.m. or 5 a.m. text <laughs> in the morning. No one else to, for me to talk to. You're there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I think we have to back up a little bit and yeah. look at the history. Okay. So um, this is an area that is just uh, west of downtown by about maybe five, six blocks. If you use 7th Avenue is the borderline to downtown. And there used to be Central Arizona Shelter Services, which I believe had about 400 shelter beds. And then about 22, 23 years ago, there was an effort, I believe, that was spearheaded by Maricopa County to build services around that shelter. And they came up with a wide array of of services from uh, where you can get three meals a day through St. Vincent de Paul, marvelous organization. Um, You, they had a dental clinic there, which was kind of real, you know, it was very much forward thinking at the time. Back then, Crystal methamphetamine was the drug of choice. And when we're talking about the population that the Human Services Campus serves, we really have to define what's, what really section of homelessness we're, we're really uh, identifying here. So let me kind of run through a very you know elementary view of homelessness. 
So, and, and all have their challenges right now. So let's talk about the elderly. The elderly are typically people that have worked their whole lives, a lot of them. Uh, maybe they didn't do really good retirement planning and they're reliant on Social Security. And that's challenging because Social Security has not kept up with our rents that in the last four or five years have doubled here in the Valley. So you're on a fixed income and now uh, your rents have doubled and you are losing your housing. So just to give you an indication of how uh, that's really affected the services the Salvation Army provides. So they have true affordable housing. They have eight-floor uh, mid-rise down on, I believe it's Fifth and Fillmore, and then they have another one out in Mesa. They're called our Silver, Silver Crest facilities. And I think combined there's around 250 apartments there, maybe 300. And it's true affordable housing in that whatever your fixed income is, uh, the Salvation Army then charges 20% of that income. So let's say that your Social Security check is $1,000, then $200 will get you um, your own place to live and meals every day and other activities. And there's a church and a after-school program uh, that are combined with these properties. So it's not just the housing piece. And now these are pre-pandemic um, estimations, but Pre-pandemic, it's gotten much, much worse for the elderly. Uh, since then, there was a 29-month waiting list for affordable housing there. So, And that's a whole other conversation about how do you get affordable housing, get through the zoning process and things like that. So let's move on to the families. Let's say that we are talking about lower income, middle income, uh, where something happened. Uh, there could have been an illness. There could have been... Uh, you know, a repair on a car, people that are living paycheck to paycheck, they can't really survive, you know, and something coming on the horizon financially that they weren't planning for. And so we have families that are in need of emergency shelter. They're finding themselves homeless, also with the increased in rent. And so we have families where something happened. Then we have what we're going to be really centering our conversation on is the chronically homeless, and the chronically homeless are people that you see in encampments. And we need to start calling it, and I think I've mentioned this on your show before, Seth, but we can't mention it enough, really, is that the chronically homeless, we need to identify and have a new phrase, is that we are looking at a population that is either mentally ill or they have untreated substance use disorders or they are addicted to either alcohol or to some other drug that's out there. And that shifts. You know, it started off, you know, way back in the crack cocaine days, and then it went to crystal methamphetamine, and that came, you know, up to about 2004 or five. Then it started switching to uh, opiates, very cheap heroin, which turned into the pharmaceuticals that were being sold illegally on the street. The most famous one was OxyContin, but before that, you know, it was Percocet, Percodan and Vicodin, uh, all opiates, all in the same family. And now that has been replaced by uh, a very powerful equivalent called fentanyl that we've all heard about. And fentanyl is a whole other ball game. I've been around, you know, the addiction, addiction treatment community, criminal justice for probably about 25 years, and I've never seen anything like this that we're experiencing right now. So back to your point about the zone is so at what was built 20-some years ago was the Human Services Campus, and it was, it was beautifully done. But pretty much everybody walking in the door has mental health issues or substance abuse issues that are untreated. And the campus 
when they opened, did not have any substance abuse treatment. So that's what I call a big front door and a very narrow back door. And I actually wrote an article um, about 20 years ago that you really need to have your centerpiece here of uh, treating the core issue of why they are homeless in the first place. And that typically is some level of substance abuse. Um, and we throw in alcohol there too. Um, alcohol is very prevalent, you know, in this population. So, And as you like to remind, as much as we talk about fentanyl or other drugs, it is the most violent of drugs. Yes, it is. The legal drug is more violent than all of the no, other drugs no, combined. No. And I learned that from the police department. No. A lot of domestic violence, no. things like that. No. One or both uh, partners are, you know, um, drunk when the police show up. So that led to what we have today when you have a very narrow back door and you have a limited number of shelter beds. You attract from other areas of the city to those services, and it's going to spill out into the surrounding community, which has occurred, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse over time. Now combine that with confusing compassion with enabling and we have what is called the zone. And this is a population of people that are taking a narcotic, mainly it's fentanyl. And we'll get back to why fentanyl is a whole other ballgame in just a moment. But mainly fentanyl robs people of their ability to care. And that's why you see people that don't shower and they don't bathe and they're living in open bathrooms and they're affecting all of the businesses around there, and it's spreading. And I have been, you know, in my role, you know, on the board of, of Salvation Army for the Western Territory is the, you know, the communities that have gotten a lot of press, like San Francisco, I believe Oakland is worse, but I've been all over the L.A. area, San Diego, and also out to Hawaii, which has a big homeless problem. And these are communities that, again, have confused compassion with enabling and as a result of this cheap fentanyl and why it's such a new ball game is uh, the Salvation Army has 2,000 treatment beds. And we'll come back and talk about those treatment beds and what's occurring there. Yeah, this is, this is a fascinating thing. I don't want people to leave over the commercial break. We'll take a quick one and we'll come back because you're going to hear a statistic that is going to blow you away. I know what Jeff's about to say and I'll just tease it. The next statistic you're going to hear from Jeff on the other side about treatment availability and our crisis with the chronic homeless in the zone, it's going to blow you away. I'm Seth Leaps, and he's Jeffrey Taylor. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Jeff Taylor, uh, my expert on all things social services, my th expert on all things uh, Drug, uh, drug abuse related, my expert on all things homeless, and uh, one of the state's experts, he and I were testifying on Capitol Hill earlier today, talking about, um, we found uh, this week, two dead women um, in, the, uh, in the homeless zone in uh, Phoenix, just uh, about a five-minute drive from here, a drive that every state legislator uh, would drive by on the way to work here in Arizona. And uh, Jeff is the uh, chairman of the board of the uh, Western Region of the Salvation Army on uh, drug abuse and drug uh, rehabilitation. Uh, the next set of statistics, which I promised the audience, is going to blow them away. And it's the beginning of the understanding of the chronic nature of the problem we all have to deal with. Jeff, go ahead. 
Yes. Yeah, so um, before the break, I would explain that we have approximately 2,000 treatment beds. And these are residential, which means that we will house you. We will give you clothes. We will teach you um, to get up and go to work every day. And we will treat your drug problem. Soup, soap, and salvation. Soup, soap, and salvation. And that is an arena that the Salvation Army knows very well because they've been treating drug problems since 1865. So Salvation Army was founded in London, England in 1865, and they used to send the wagon down to the Skid Row area, and that's where the soup, soap, and salvation. So you got on the wagon, and that's where the, you know, I'm on the wagon um, phrase came from, which I didn't even know till a few years ago. I thought it was great. A few fell off the wagon, but... You know, it was, a, it was a pathway out of, you know, the Skid Row lifestyle. So of those 2,000 treatment beds, we historically have had waiting lists that sometimes went up to five or six months waiting list. I mean, where can you get six months of residential, you know, what we call work therapy for free? And it's got a dedicated funding source, which is the thrift store network. So there are several thrift stores throughout the state. So 100% of the proceeds from... Salvation Army Thrift Stores pays for drug treatment, so it kind of self-funds. And right now, remember, historically, up until just a few years ago, we have had a waiting list and sometimes extensive waiting lists. And now we are about 30% empty. That means that we have about 600 empty beds in the western United States during our biggest drug crisis ever. So we have 1,100 people on the streets in the zone at 9th Avenue in Jefferson – most of them with uh, mental health or addiction issues, probably all of them falling into one of those two categories. And we have a 30% availability of occupancy for treatment and housing for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. So what's going on here? Yeah. Is the, I mean, I cannot remember when we've had higher drug use right. in our communities. Right. And Seth, you know that better than I do. So what's going on here is that, A, is that we started to have a pathway to treatment without a consequence. Now, that may work for someone who is early on in their addiction. You know, their first brush with the law, maybe they're a six-month, you know, addict or a year addict, and, you know, diversion programs or uh, what are called pretrial diversion programs now really don't have much of a consequence. They can charge you with a crime on pretrial if you don't do well in the program, but typically the charges that qualify for the program aren't going to send you to, you know, our jail system or to our prison system for any, you know, really consequential period of time. So when you remove a consequence, then you remove what is called the hammer or what I like to call therapeutic leverage. Most of our clients right now are coming through the criminal justice system, and they're doing very well. Because they know if they don't do well, then there's going to be a consequence. They've been arrested and they've been ordered and they, through court order, are staying at a Salvation Army facility. Right. Or they have spent time in prison, which is a consequence, and they're very engaged, typically right when they get out and not going back. But I think that it is something that really isn't well known in our community, and and that is, is that we think that we can incarcerate the addiction out of somebody. And we practiced that for many years, and we found out that wasn't very effective. Incarceration. People can get drugs in prison, by the way. Yes. 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 Okay. 
And, you know, there's a kind of a misnomer out there that they can legally, but do is yeah. how I should put it. People and I've heard, it, you know, many people right. are more drugs in prison than there are. And that's just not true. Right. They are hard to come by and they're very expensive, but they are available. Uh, and, and it's sporadic. So back to um, this, what is going on is that when you don't have a consequence and you just offer people treatment, I have offered people treatment in the zone and in other encampments throughout the valley for over 20 years. And I can count on one hand of the hundreds of people that I've offered a treatment bed, given them a card, given them directions, say you can walk right in the door, be assessed um, for the program, and you can be sleeping in a bed tonight. And of the hundreds of people I've reached out to on the streets, ask them their name. You know, I try to develop a little bit of a relationship with them, really treat them like the human being that they are. And like I said, five or less have actually walked in the door. Now, I've planted a seed, though, because back then the circle would get smaller. And, you know, at some point when you're out there committing crime in our communities, which is typically thefts, and that could be retail theft. It could be organized retail theft. It could be burglarizing cars or jumping over fences um, and stealing bikes and taking them to the nearest pawn shop. That they are um, really the – I lost my train of thought there, Seth. you got to help me no, out. No, <laughs> that's okay. You're talking about people who are engaging in theft to maintain their addictions and to maintain their supplies. And when you offer them, you know, a place to stay for free, they're not of inter- it's not of interest to them because they figured out their lifestyle. And their lifestyle is just fine. Thank you very much. I'm stealing bikes and I'm able to maintain the drug addiction that I want to maintain and I, I'm not interested in three square a day in a bed. Back to the seed that I planted. Yeah. So they remember that treatment bed. Now they engage in this escalating. Addiction rarely remains constant. It gets worse over time. People become uh, higher risk takers because they're more desperate. Mm -hmm. And so now you're starting to get arrested. So once they get arrested, they remember, hey, I remember that there's a treatment bed, you know, available to me. So they'll talk to their public defender or, you know, to their assessor in the jail and see if the court would accept, you know, being released to either, you know, our facility or some other facilities because there are many and there are – we're not the only ones with empty beds. Right. So this is what happens when we look the other way, when crime is being committed, which is being committed quite often in all of our communities, not just in the zone. It's all over town and I'm sure – but when I was in the zone, I have to tell you, we'll, we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll come back on the other side of this because the crime situation is um, is abhorrent. When I went to visit it within an hour, I must have witnessed five crimes. And I'm not talking misdemeanors. I'm talking arson. I'm talking battery, assault and battery. And the cops aren't there. In fact, I had to give a cop on the walking beat a ride. Me, little old me, I had to give a cop a ride. There's this... There's this ethos that has suffused that whole neighborhood that we are going to have a no patrol zone there. It's going to be Thunderdome, and guess what? It has become Thunderdome. Can we talk about that when we come back? Oh, it it has. It is uh, one of the most dangerous high crime areas in the state of Arizona. Yeah, and this is a failure of our state and city to do something about it, which they can. I'm Seth Leaps, and he's Jeff Taylor. We'll be right back.
I'm Seth Leibson. Welcome back. Jeff Taylor is my in-studio guest. We're talking about uh, drugs, mental illness, and the homeless, chronic homeless crisis here uh, in the Valley, but generally uh, as well. Um, in this area, I don't know, is it about now five or six blocks? It's growing uh, around Ninth Avenue and Jefferson and forward. Um, as I said, when I drove through there for about an hour, just kind of looking and self-educating, I must have seen at least five crimes, violent crimes. And there are no cops. There is no police. I saw arson. There is no fire department. Talk to me about this. This is this is this is a abnegation of responsibility. It's a resignation of responsibility, and it's only going to get worse. So there are several efforts uh, at the legislature right now on how to really manage what is going on, and really, it's it's been to the point where it's very difficult to manage at this point because it's gone on too long and grown too big. But there are some efforts to um, outlaw street camping, which I think that that needs to be enforced. But more importantly, we need to start enforcing the laws of these high crimes that are occurring. Um, not only, like I said, not only in the zone, but I live, uh, I live up in North Phoenix along a canal bank is not too far away. There's encampments along the canal bank. All of the overpasses, they're um, you know, on Northern and the I-17. Mm-hmm. Uh, encampments have taken over that overpass and they're moved on and then they're, you know, then they're back. It's like squeezing a balloon. But it seems to me that we've, you know, become this very enabling community, which if you talk to anybody in the treatment community, enabling means you can enable people right into the grave. Right. And that's what we're doing. So let's go back to what's happening. Why do we have empty beds? So it's very hard to compete. You remember, Seth, back in Governor Ducey's um, opioid Act. We yeah, had a special or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had a special session, which is a big deal. That means that you have a session on one issue. Right now, they're dealing with maybe three or four hundred issues. You know, in the open session of the Arizona Legislature. Right now, and back then when they had this, that was a crisis, and they were dealing with OxyContin, which was being prescribed. Like candy, there too were prodigiously. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and there were there were some doctors that really didn't know, and then there were some doctors that were running businesses. Pill mills, we, we call them. Pill yeah. mills, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that being sold on the street, it would filter down to the street as an illegal, you know, narcotic. It's basically pill form heroin, and that pill. There were a lot of different potencies of the pill, but generally it would average out to about fifty dollars a pill. Now that has been replaced by the synthetic opioid, which gives the addict, you know, the same high, the same potency, if not more potency, for $1 a pill. Think about that. For an addict back then, for years, up until just a few years ago, you wore yourself out trying to raise two to $300 a day to support your opiate addiction. And that with that came consequences. Now, we have people that actually come into our facility and they're feeling pretty depressed in the first month. You know, we need the brain to kind of get rewired days into days, nights into nights. We need to have people um, on good nutrition and also feeling accomplished in their day. We also start off um, in chapel, which I think is an amazing behavioral change. When you start the day in chapel, then your behavior changes. 
we we really profess that this is God's property and we expect you to behave as such. And we have people coming from all walks of life with criminal histories and we don't judge them. Uh, we want to help them. And in my 20 plus years of being all over the United States at adult rehabilitation centers, I have yet to see an incidence of violence there. Yep. Yep. How many incidences of violence did you – now these are – Largely the same people, Seth, same population that you were running into right. in the zone, right? And but for you, a dollar a day, they can avoid all that, right? So you're sitting in there, you're $4 depressed. Four dollars a day, three dollars a day, yeah. and it would keep people in treatment, retain them. We call it retention. We would that would keep people in treatment because they're tired of trying to raise two or three hundred dollars a day. Right. Well, now they can just look out the door, and they can tear off a piece of a cardboard box. And write on it, you know, please help, God bless, and you can be a full-blown opiate addict for twenty, twenty-five bucks a day. Now, in, and, and in those days, you could survive for some time when the problem was just heroin, as Sam Quinones put it in the Washington Post op-ed earlier this week. Fentanyl, no one survives. No, no long-term fentanyl addicts. There are no long-term fentanyl addicts for a dollar a dose, four dollars a day. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Jeff Taylor. We're going to talk about how we got to this point. Um, a lot of it is through language. A lot of it is through appeasement. A lot of it is through misplaced compassion. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I'm talking with Jeff Taylor from the Salvation Army. He is the chairman of the Board of Western Region on Drug Rehabilitation. We're talking about the drug problem. We're talking about the chronic homelessness problem. Jeff, we were making the point at the state capitol today that um, back in 1992, this country had about 250 million people in it. About 5,000 people a year were dying from drug poisonings, what some people call overdoses. I call them poisonings. Today, about 107,000 people a year are dying from drug poisonings. The country's population increased to 333 million. That means the country's population increased by a third and drug poisoning deaths increased by about 2,000 percent. How the hell did that happen? Boy, we really need to unpack that. But, Seth, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it back to you, and I want you to – because I love to listen to you on this <laughs> no, subject. No, no, I no. really do. Well, we took it seriously at one point. We took the drug problem in America seriously, and we didn't care about the misplaced compassion uh, that came with notions of having to say, you're a drug addict. Don't start. Get help if you've succum- if you succumbed, and we're not going to tolerate it. We used to call it drug abuse. Then we called it drug use. Then we started calling it substance abuse. Then we called it substan- u- substance use, and we just kind of normalized the language over time, and we gave up on the prevention message, just say no, or this is your brain on drugs, or don't start. Uh, we gave up on that message and started focusing on treatment, and rehab, all of which is important, but we decided that there was a lot of money to be made in treatment and rehab. And boy, howdy, anyone who needs treatment or rehab, they're going to find out how much money is involved in that system, how expensive that is. But we started with a philosophy that an ounce of prevention was worth a pound of cure because people who do succumb 
to addictions have an awfully hard time getting treatment or getting recovery in the first place and then maintaining it. It's a throw of the dice to ever get someone into treatment, and then it's another throw of the dice for them to maintain it. That's how hard addiction can be. And after several years of normalizing the language, destigmatizing the problem, making it uh, on par with uh, other other mental or other health issues, we decided to say that you are a victim, you have no volitional responsibility, and that you have um, simply become one of the many people in this country that we are going to now try and address your problem with a rehabilitation and recovery ethic. And when you look at relapse rates, you realize something that it took us a long time to figure out, which is that it's better to not start than to try and fix someone who has started and is now broken. Someone like you is a miracle. Someone like you who has gone through the hell of addiction and gotten long-term recovery is not the norm. And then we started doing other things by normalizing drug use, not only with the language. We started advertising mood disorder pills on television starting in 1996. And you started to see a slow and steady rise of drug use in this country. We got our drug use down to about 8%, 7% regular drug users in 1992. And then we started to slowly see it creep up. Then we started advertising some of these drugs. If you have a restless leg, there's a pill for that. If you don't feel comfortable at a party, there's a drug for that. Today we see if you're an obese child, there's a pill for that. Um, and then we started seeing more and more drugs flow across the border. And then we started to say, well, certain drugs, you know, are better than other drugs. You know, we have alcohol. What the hell? Let's legalize marijuana too, you know. Uh, and then we started to say, you know what? We're just not going to enforce the drug laws because turns out, tends to be more of a problem in minority communities, and there's a racial aspect to this, so we're going to let up on the accelerator of all this sort of thing. And all of a sudden, as we normalized the use and regulated the use of marijuana in this country, the cartels in Mexico, which used to own that franchise, converted because they're smart and they're a vertically aligned business and they're a horizontally aligned business, and they started getting into the opioid business. And along with the prescriptions that the doctors were issuing with reckless abandon, the Mexican cartels realized there's money to be made here because we can't satisfy enough of the people who are trying to get these uh, prescriptions from pill mills. So we turned the cartels in Mexico by legalizing marijuana here into opium producers and synthetic opioid producers. And we got a perfect storm. And now we have an opioid problem in this country, along with a marijuana problem, along with every other substance abuse problem. And we are watching uh, the need to now build uh, the equivalent of two Vietnam memorial walls a year when what um, those people who went and have seen and visited it in Washington, D.C. will note it took 16 years to build with those 58,000 souls who were lost in that period of time, and we're building the equivalent of two. Because we let up on it, Jeff. That's that's what I think has happened. And we're not enforcing the laws, and we're not talking about a prevention message. We're not telling kids not to start. We have parents who think they are their kids' friends and would rather them use safely with them, as if you can use these drugs safely. 
and we're playing Russian roulette with our child population. That's what I think happened. So, and that's why I like listening to you, Seth, because you, uh, you know, you just kind of walk through how did we get here, and it's supply and demand right now, and boy, the supply. Let's talk about that just for a moment. Pure form fentanyl is coming across the border in maybe, let's say, a six-inch by six-inch box in drones. And that box of pure fentanyl, it's so powerful, can have 250,000 doses in that box. Not so, droves. Drones, folks. Drones. Drones. No, no. Yeah. Drones and droves. No, no. <laughs> and that, how do, again, how do you compete with that? Right. You know, it's a smuggler's dream. Mm-hmm. It's small. It's powerful. And you don't have to put it in a produce truck or try to put it on a backpack of a mule coming across the border. But I want to talk about, again, because I'm so entrenched in getting this across at the Arizona legislature, is that you've got to have a consequence. So here's an example. So I also um, am very close in, in work as the community liaison for a behavioral health agency called Sage Counseling. Now, they only deal with criminal justice clients and behavioral health. They have several contracts, and those include diversion programs, which you might get a uh, driving while intoxicated. That would be diversion if it's under certain limits and you're not repetitive. And then we have um, domestic violence, people that haven't been to prison, and they're pretty tough clients. We don't have a great you know, show-up rate for those. People that have been to prison – they show up. They want to change their lives. They're very engaged, and they're good examples for the other people. Don't go down the road that I went down because it's a pretty bumpy, rocky road. You're going to lose family relationships. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose everything that was important to you, and then we're going to take away your liberty. They're very engaged on not going back, and they are, they are Sage's best clients. That's, that's, that's good to know and good to hear because the message you keep hammering and I'm so glad you do, is that you'll never get out of this unless there is a consequence. And the consequence is important, and what you and I are also working on is on the prevention message in the first place. Let me pick up on that as we close the show in the next segment. You and Jeff Taylor and I will be right back. Folks, how do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy with banks failing, stock market volatility and a possible recession coming? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. I'm talking about a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. I want you to talk to my friends at Y-Refi. They're local. You can visit with them. I know them really well. Super trustworthy and honest. You won't get a sales pitch. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Just check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call them at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. Jeff Taylor has been with us this hour. Jeff. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, the great theologian who uh, wrote the Serenity Prayer, for those people that know it, uh, either through 12-step programs or otherwise, he said, um, human desires incre- in his book on the irony of American history, he said, human desires increase with the means of gratification. We turned blind eyes to the various drug problems that came about over the past decade and a half, 
And for the past five or six years, while some of us were screaming about fentanyl and no one was doing anything about it, we now actually have something even worse. So if we thought we were pulling our hair out over fentanyl, we are now seeing xylazine, which is known on the street as Trank, which is even worse than fentanyl, the zombie drug. And um, my point is this. We're approaching a tipping point that we're either going to be able to turn this car around on or we're not. And I'll let you take the last minute here on this show to talk to us about the importance of being able to turn this car around. I think what um, what I'm really working on is that this should not be politicized in any way. We had a very good meeting today with people from both sides of the aisle, and they are pretty much all on the same page. And that is, is that this is about our children. It's about our children's long-term health. When we look at our children and the pressures that they're under today, um, I got bullied when I was in sixth grade. For about a month, I got bullied. You know who knew about that? It was my home group. That was it. But just imagine everybody in the home group has a 1,000 followers on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and now there's 10,000 people out there that are sending me really mean messages. You know, I dealt with a home a home group of people. Our children are not equipped for that, and that's why drug use is starting earlier and earlier. I believe it's seventh grade yeah. is the is the average age, of average, average age. age of initiation. Remember the old Buffalo Stephen uh, Stephen Stills Buffalo Springfield song. For what it's worth, there's something happening here. What it is, we ain't exactly clear. Well, we are pretty clear, and there is something happening, and it's big. The name of that song is "For What It's Worth." That's the actual title of that song. Believe it or not, it's not. There's something happening here. Well. For what it's worth, I think our children are worth it, and I think the future of our country is worth it. And um, we're going to keep our sleeves rolled up and our socks pulled up to do something about it. Jeff Taylor, thank you for everything you do. It's great working with you. It's great having you in the studio. Folks, until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.